Jesus, and then we're going to, this is an unusual kind of uh, service today, subject matter is different than normal, and uh, in a way, I mean, it's all still biblical, but I think we're, it's it's a little different than our normal approach, but in Genesis chapter, uh, let's say to begin with, uh, Genesis chapter number 1, verse number uh, 26, Genesis 1, 26 there, I'm sorry, Have I, am I, I thought I included it in the thing, maybe I'm out of order, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, that's in Genesis 2, 7. Then in uh, chapter 1, this is where I was uh, going, put it together out of order. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, the scripture says. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I want to back up. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The things that we're seeing is that God created uh, human beings separately than everything else in creation. And and, uh, he made people in his image, the scripture says. And people are always confused by that. What it means is the character and the attributes that God has in himself, he imparted to people. He made us unique in all of creation. That's what we're uh, seeing. And the fact that God ordered, God decided, God said, this is the way humans are going to be. And then the scripture says also, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed, which... These passages help us to see how God was at work in the very first to assign to humans the meaning that we flourish in. This is how people flourish, by keeping to the order that God gave and assigned to human human beings. Okay, so we're going to talk about, uh, over the last several months, the elders as we have met, uh, I'm an elder as the Constitution bylaws outlined along with four other men that this church has identified and voted on in the past and who have the character qualities of elders as understood in the Bible and we've been given the responsibility of helping to shepherd and care for this congregation and so we meet frequently to talk about member issues, to pray for our congregation and to uh, just walk through the challenges that are in front of us as a congregation. And so we had been talking about some things that I don't think you would find all that interesting in your everyday life, about protocol, for example, uh, for facility use, and things that we must think about, but they're maybe a little on the boring side. 
You know, it's not the kind of stuff that you lay awake at night thinking about, oh, this is so fascinating. But they're uh, necessary things. And so in the middle of that, we received a letter from our insurance carrier, Southern Mutual, and it had about 10 bullet points that served for us as a little bit of a wake-up call to say, you uh, should take seriously some weaknesses in the way that you're prepared to face liability. And so as we started looking at those issues, we realized that even though the Constitution and bylaws that govern this congregation, that the founding members put into place are helpful, they didn't address one or two issues that now we feel at this juncture in culture we must address. We have to think about them. And it's a way of protecting our interest as a congregation. It's a way of strengthening uh, some areas where we're in a litigious, is the word right? Uh, people will litigate at the drop of a hat in a society like ours. And so there are some things, as I say, that we probably would rather not think about, that, but we must think about. And so when uh, we started to talk through those things, I think what it did for us is just to uh, make us aware that we, we needed to respond with some urgency to some, some of those issues. So if you're a member of this congregation, you were sent an email yesterday, and it included these uh, ideas that we thought about for months and prayed over for months and months and then decided, okay, it's time to commit these to church action. So there are a few things that as a congregation you will vote uh, on in the course of a year. You'll vote for the budget. You'll see it. You'll understand it. have the opportunity to ask questions about it, and you'll vote on it. You'll vote on elders every year. So that's what will happen on the 30th. But any change that happens to the guiding documents in this congregation have to be voted on by the members of the church. So it's congregational in that regard. So to make these changes, those people who are members of this church have to affirm in a vote that, yes, we agree with the, the suggestions that you're making. We see along with you that they're in our best interest. And so... Because of some of the, uh, I mean, we, you read illustrations of these kinds of questions every single week if you pay any attention to media at all. And so the first way that we wanted to address uh, the way that God made human beings is in terms of uh, biblical sexuality. And the Bible, from what we just read, teaches us that God forms and assigns gender at conception, biological male or female, in part to fulfill his command to be fruitful and multiply. And uh, uh, references for that are in the book of Genesis, and we just read those. So this, our current Constitution bylaws just were silent on res in respect to this because it's very concise, and that's okay. But this is an area we felt like we need to vote to add some defining language. Also, biblical marriage. We believe that marriage derives from God's revealed word in Genesis chapter 2, 24, is reiterated by Jesus in Matthew 19, 5 and 6, and by Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 5, 31. You, you can go read all those references yourself. They say exactly the same thing. Marriage is a sacred covenant union between a biologically created male husband, a biologically created female wife, we believe that God orders creation and marriage is biblically defined, is honorable among all so that it is the only suitable place for sexual expression. That's 
you find in Hebrews chapter 13, 4, marriage models the way God uh, relates to his people. If you were in Sunday school this morning, small group ministry for adults, we talked about all of these things in some detail. And I would encourage you to get connected to a Bible study group. If you're not, that one or one of the other ones that happens. Article 4, this is a separate part of the uh, bylaws where it talks about church membership, but it's related to this other conversation. Only church members may serve in designated ministry team positions. The elders approve ministry team leaders and members and give their approval to organizational structures upon Turning 18 years of age, it is incumbent upon anyone who wishes to participate in the ministry of Grace Community Church to willingly petition for membership to function under the church's authority. This is for the protection and harmony of the congregation. Okay, so we are going to unpack that all today in a message, like I say, that's a little bit different. But we're going to talk about why we feel it's necessary to address these changes and because you're a mature thinking human you already probably realize full well why we're we feel like this is important for us to uh, address uh so the people in the beginning constituted a church has to be an incorporation it has to have incorporation in north america to be a non-profit a 501c3 this church is that it meets those criteria but you have to constitute to in order to do that you have to prove these are our articles of faith we are a legitimate uh non-profit for the government's sake and so an aspect of that is that we have a constitution and bylaws so when you think about that which you never do right you never think about this but somebody had to at some point and has to on a continuing basis what you notice is that they this this is the way that those documents and by the way, I get a little giddy doing this stuff, honestly. I like it. It doesn't bother me at all. I, like, enjoy it. Because I think when you get what's underneath that you find this is so needed. It's so helpful. And even though you probably don't feel giddy like me, it's helpful. But what, would, what do you need in your documents, your constitution and bylaws and the policies that govern a church? Well, they should be biblically derived, as it says there. They should be accurate and sound. They should be mutually agreed upon. In other words, that's why you, on the 30th, get to vote on these issues because it's congregational. You, if you are a member here, have the opportunity to say, we agree, we affirm that. They're useful for clarifying expectations. We're going to talk about church covenant today. And the church covenant here is in the new member curriculum but to anybody that's been here for a long time, nobody knows whether or not it was affirmed by the congregation. So there's a covenant that is kind of grandfathered into our behavior in our new member stuff. But nobody I've talked to says, and that's people like Dot who's worked in the office for a long, long time, and Barney and others, you know, we don't know for certain that the covenant was ever really officially voted on by the congregation. So we're going to ask you, on the 30th to vote on the church covenant. It was emailed to you yesterday. There's a copy of the Constitution bylaws in the foyer. If you're just like uh, attending here regularly and you want to know these things, we're talking about this openly because everybody needs to understand it. If you'd like to see uh, our Constitution and bylaws, by all means, we would like you to see that and also the church covenant, which has been tweaked by adding a preamble 
and adding one statement, and the rest of it is pretty much identical to what was there before. A covenant, as we're going to talk about, is an agreement among members, but it's important because it sort of biblically cements our thoughts about what it means to be a congregation together. It should be for our good when we look at our documents and the Constitution, bylaws, covenant should be an expression of our norms. In other words, this is how we always will behave. We're not going to deviate. So you hear people talk about reinventing the wheel. You don't want to have to reinvent the wheel, right? You want there to be things that are predictable, deliberate, mutually understood, and those are the kind of things that we're thinking about. They reflect our promises to each other. We're going to talk about this today, our promises. You promise things. When you become a member of this church, you made promises to your brothers and sisters when you became a a part of a congregation. Uh, And most churches that are in the free church tradition, which this one is, in other words, it's a... Uh, It has a congregational element, has pastors, elders, deacons, typically. They will follow a model like this. It's how things settled out across history for good reasons. So they reflect the promises that we make. They express our ecclesiology and doctrine. Ecclesiology, what is that? A big word that like preachers use, okay? But basically ecclesiology is the approach to being a church. The word ecclesia in the New Testament is the word church. So it meant a group of people who gathered together, a group of people who made promises as disciples to one another, but it talks about governance. And we're not interested in all that, but we have to be. Governance, the idea that there's a way that church looks at this location. Ecclesiology, doctrine which is theology, belief. What is it that when we read the Bible, we mutually uh, conclude is true? That's our doctrine. And then we show, it shows how we aspire to live with integrity. What's integrity? Alignment. The things that we confess are the things that we practice. And there are ways to ensure that that's what happens among us that we want to think about. They express our commitment and witness to outsiders, which is also important. It's important that when people approach us, they can understand what we believe and what we confess and what we practice. So, okay, I'm mostly through with the parts of this that sound like the fine print that you read in a, a contract. But So when we think about why we're approaching some uh, changes, additions really to the guiding documents, here is why. I don't like, personally, this is me, the idea of culture wars. I don't like it. I think that God put us here on earth, the church, to be witnesses to people. And that what God really is interested in doing through the gospel is connecting people in relationship to himself. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so the idea that I have is like, I want the gospel to permeate everything that we do. And gospel means what? Good news. Good news, not bad news. And so what we want to be sure that we understand is we are a congregation with convictions, right? We, where do our convictions come from? The book, the Bible. So we're fleshing those out But my immediate posture toward people that don't know Christ is not adversarial. That's not how I think God intended for 
us as Christians to be. I think that people naturally, because of sin, are the word the Bible uses is at enmity with God. Rebellion. It's in human nature. It's so funny being around little kids. I noticed this recently. Our little grandson, we love him so much. So much fun. But sit him down and say no and watch what he does. He got like, we're in the yard. There's a road out there. Stay out of the road. Where is he going? He's going in the road. I don't know what it is. Well, I think I do. I think that in humans, there is this kind of chafing against the order that's been given to us by our creator. Rebellion is in the heart of humans according to everything you read in the Bible. And so people are at enmity with God. They're at odds with God. And what we want through the gospel is for everybody to be reconciled to Christ. But in the meantime, there's the church and the world. There's the church, there is the world. And the church is different than the world. And that's what we're trying to make clear in our understanding. And so there's a lot that I thought about. I thought about Jesus said, or it was said about Jesus in the book of 1 Corinthians, there's no foundation that can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ. He, Jesus is our foundation. What's, we think about a foundation, not normally, right? You walked across one to get in here and take your seat, and underneath you is this thing that they poured first, a slab. Rebar, concrete, you wouldn't have a building if it didn't exist because the codes require it. It's underneath, you don't think about it, but it's meaningful and helpful. Same thing with what we're talking about. These are foundational realities. Jesus, foundational and most important of all, underlies everything, and then we're working out our commitment to him. So... The, the uh, ideas that we're going to discuss are biblically derived, helpful, and all the things we've talked about up to now. After multiple extensive conversations, prayerful conversations, the elders recommend that we change, add to our foundational documents and clarify what we believe about marriage, gender, and church membership and affirm uh, by church vote in two weeks a covenant. That's what we're suggesting. If you have questions, you need anything we're talking about clarified, that's why there are two weeks between now and when we'll vote. So you can call Jonathan, who makes announcements. You can call Alvin, who often is in the booth. You can call Varney. You can call Scott Carpenter. And any of them will be happy to uh, talk through any concerns and questions you have. So here's the first idea. Marriage and church membership are expressions that we... Uh, belong to each other through covenant commitment. When you read the Bible, you can't understand it apart from the reality of its covenants. God starts making covenants with people really uh, immediately, right? The no, the Noahic, Noahic covenant, they call it. What did God promise Noah? What did he say to Noah? I'm never going to do what? Destroy the world with water again, right? I'm never going to flood the whole earth again. It was a promise, an agreement, a covenant that God made between himself and Noah and his descendants. So you have that. You have the covenant with Abraham that God made. What did God tell Abraham? I'm going to make you a mighty nation. He says, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. I'm going to bring, ultimately, 
hope through Jesus is what he told them. And when we talk about the old covenant, we're talking about a system that uh, Moses, God gave Moses on Sinai and was communicating and parted. Then the new covenant we know was everything that was pointed to through the old, old system until Christ came and the new covenant is in his blood. But a covenant is an agreement between parties. In scripture, they help us understand God's ways and outline his expectations and our responses. So who's the major player in covenants? Not you and me, right? We're players, but the major uh, player is the one who gives us uh, revelation, insight. So it's uh, God gives us these covenants in Scripture, and they uh, we are familiar with them because we, like the first thing Frankie and I did to start our married life was swear to each other certain things. We stood before God, witnesses, and we said, I promise to care for you. How? Just when things are going great, right? No, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse. How long? Till death do us part. That was the promise that we made. What's the strength of our marriage commitment? To me, it's just continuing to work back to the promises that we made to each other. That's what it is. It's like we vowed, we made, we promised, and the rest of our married life is fleshing those promises out. A covenant. That's what a covenant is. It's a promise, an agreement that you made with the other person. You could write your own vows if you want to. Some people do. If you do, I hope that you include in there some strong promises to each other that you can work back to that are unconditional. Unconditional and permanent. When we look at what the idea was, a man will leave his father and mother. We could go deep into all this. But people talk about severance. The idea in marriage is like when we got married, I already lived on my own. Frankie still lived with her parents. She came to live with me. That was the transitioning of her allegiance. and, And the severance happened. She came to be with me. She left her, her family, her parents. And, and you leave your father and mother, you cling to each other, and the two become one flesh. There's that permanence that, that happens, the unity that occurs. But the foundation of it is our vow, our promise to each other, covenant. And we think about in Christian community, churches historically were founded on covenants, a promise. I'll do this in relationship with you. I'm not going to gossip about you or backbite you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to, I won't forsake the assembling of myself together with you. I'll keep meeting with you. And so as you go read the covenant, what you see that it is is a bunch of promises and expectations. That's what it is. Things that we should take seriously. Things that we should abide in. Things that define our community. That's what a church is, a community of human beings that God puts in a location. When people talk about churches, we know that there is a universal church. What is the universal church? It's everybody the Spirit of God has come to live inside of, right? I've met brothers and sisters all over the world. You know, in Turkey and India and Haiti, brothers and sisters. How 
because God's Spirit lived in them just like he does me. That's the universal church. But in the Bible, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Colossae, to the church at Philadelphia, local churches where believers gathered and functioned with order. And most of that order comes from the epistles in the New Testament, right? The epistles are given to God churches. And so historically what's happened with congregations is that we are founded on the basis of promises to each other that we make. And some I love some of the old covenants. Like we talked about this a little in our elders gather. And, of course, my background was 30 years of Baptist uh, life. They use often this document called New Hampshire Confession of Faith. And in it, it talks about the idea ideas like this. We added one of them like, when I leave from here, I'll join to another like-minded congregation in order to live out the principles of this covenant and also, uh, more importantly, the principles of God's word, although they should align, they should agree. But it says things like that. It says, I, I will faithfully support the uh, gathering of the congregation unless I'm providentially hindered. Providentially hindered, it says. What does that mean? It means more often than not, I'm going to gather with my brothers and sisters to worship and to serve and to, to be faithful. So those are the important ideas that we find in the promises that we make uh, to each other in covenants. Is, is it difficult for two people to live out their commitments in a relationship with each other? Well, all the honest people said, yes, it's difficult. Not all that easy. Well, think of how much harder is it than to live out our promises and commitments with a large group of people. And that's what a church is. And truthfully, many modern people just shy away from both. They cohabitate so as to apply a loose sense of dedication. And then I think some people are cohabiting with their church, if I was honest. They have kind of a loose sense of dedication. I kind of hold it loosely. Why? Because then I'm less accountable. We talked about this in Sunday school day. You missed a good Sunday school lesson. Well, we talked about the idea that uh, it used to be the data about marriage says that uh, the divorce rates have gone down in the U.S. It used to be like one in every two first-time marriages ended in divorce. The data's gone down because people have stopped getting married and now they just live together. So it's their... It really is not that much of a change in the dynamic. It's just that people have said, we will hold this commitment more loosely. And what for churches, if we think that way, I'm not going to take the step of membership. That's what I'm talking about in part in this message today is that we're, we don't see others' needs as primary. We don't see others' needs as primary. We see our need, this is such a Western way of viewing the church, is to say, well, the church, is, it better be there for me. It better provide what I need. But what about what others need? It becomes secondary in our thinking. We don't think about what others need and what, how God wants to use me to help provide what others need. We think about, well, it better be there for me and what I need. And so these are some of the thoughts that, when we're talking about, like, okay, why do we need to take seriously the idea of a covenant, the idea of a, a membership, and what marriage means, and some of these realities. But also, 
we think about the uh, scripture ideas that we're getting into. Marriage, gender, and church membership originated with God and ordained by God. So God determined what marriage means, and God gave birth to the church and explained the nature of church. God created men and women. That's what we read and said, a man will leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And Jesus repeated this, and Paul repeated it, and there is no ambiguity in it. In other words, it's very clear that God created people, that God assigned to people the meaning inherent in what it means to live with a certain kind of purpose and reality. And so Christians believe in God's self-revelation. We believe God speaks, has spoken, has given us everything we know to live a life of righteousness, a life of forgiveness, a life in relationship with with our Creator. He gave us the institutions that comprise society. What are those institutions? Family, church, government. Some people will expand on that, but I think those are the basic ways that God gave order to society that we can see. You read about it in the New Testament. Pray for government, government officials. Why? Because all government is given, is God-ordained is the way that the uh, uh, writers put it in the New Testament. Even messed up, horrible government. I went to Haiti uh, on a mission trip one time, and when I came back, I was like, This is the most profoundly messed up place, geography, I have ever witnessed. What is wrong? But the Bible says, you know what? God ordains government. Then it's our responsibility to make it good. But but it's part of God's plan for society, for culture, for life. He gave us family. He gave us government in all the ways it looks. And he gave us church community, Christian connection, relationships. And so he reveals, he speaks, he shows us. When we think about church, for example, there are several analogies used to describe the church. A family, John 1, 12, church is a family. As many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God. As to as many as uh, call on his name, trusting in Christ. So we're called, the church is called a family, the church is called a body. What's the analogy is this, like what's standing in front of you is this complex thing that God put together with fingers and toes and knees that hurt when I get up in the morning and a brain that works better with coffee, you know, helping it. That, but God made us, and the, what does the scripture say about it? You're fearfully, wonderfully made. We've, this system of what we are, the Bible says, it, listen, when God wanted to come up with an analogy for church, he said the church is a body with Christ at the head. And you, the elbows and arms and legs and fingers and toes, and then the unseen parts that still have essential functions and are so needed, he says that's the analogy. Then another analogy that he uses is a building. A building. Peter talks about that we're living stones, that we're put together. And so and the metaphor is of a building that the Bible says these are all the ways. What of all, all of those different illustrations that God chose have in common? 
The, the thing that they have in common is that this idea of being together, body is, functions well when it's together, when the members are connected, functioning, living out their purpose in relationship to each other. I used the illustration once of Vincent Van Gogh. You remember that he uh, cut off his ear, allegedly, historically, and mailed it to someone. And there are all kinds of ideas about why he did that. One of the reasons is that, you know, he struggled with depression. He struggled with mental illness. But um, his ear was not meant to be in a box somewhere, right? It was meant to be, you know, on the side of his head. And I had somebody approach me after church and was like, that's almost an offensive kind of, I'm like, it's just historical. It's what happened. (laughs) The idea is that we're supposed to be connected. We're supposed to function in relationship to each other. And that these are the illustrations that God himself chooses. So connection is the, the thing that all these illustrations have in common. And we believe that God deten- determined gender as an aspect of his sovereign will for people. We don't believe in arguing from outliers and anomalies as norms. Do you know what an outlier is, right? It's like... This very unusual thing that, like, it happens one in a million. And there are ways that gender is uh, impacted. One in a million people is going to have a, you know, a a different way that gender is experienced in their reality. But we don't argue from outliers and anomalies, something that occasionally, very rarely happens. We argue from predictable, normal. What the uh, scripture says about gender is that God created and assigned it to people at their birth. And this is a confusing time culturally. People often argue for virtue from nothing more than the latest uh, socially derived ethical trend. I thought about what Isaiah said about that in scripture. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's the, that's the culture you're in now, where people say, we're going to take virtue and turn it exactly upside down. And so if you don't agree with us, you're evil. And we would say, no, because we don't determine good and evil. I don't wake up and decide what right and wrong are. We believe that they are derived from God. God assigns it. God says it. I have a... a you know, we think about what the uh, scripture is saying about about people. This will hit close to home for people. When we start talking about human sexuality, we start talking about issues of gender, we start talking about, you know, uh, a lot of these. Cause, why? Because more and more, more of us are going to have uh, connections to people who are struggling with these uh, challenges because they're very much like front burner kinds of things. And the trend in... Our society is away from having a biblically informed reality. So this highlights to us, I think, the need to be clear as we understand what we affirm as a church. Christian understanding of marriage, gender, and church membership are often distinct from broad cultural views, which is what I'm just saying. We have a distinctly biblical understanding of marriage. And church membership, listen, uh, is a way that we protect our understanding of marriage in our local church community. You say, why is it important for me to be a member 
of a local church because it's a way that we protect our own understanding of marriage in, in terms of like who serves, who teaches, what are they saying to people? Well, a way that we think about that is by saying church membership really matters. It really has weight. It's a way that we covenant together. Okay, I made promises to you that these beliefs are uh, important to me too. And so that's part of this discussion, why, why that part of it matters. There are many ways that we know that church membership was understood as a part of the mutual commitment of Christians in the first century. If you like to read, look up Mark Dever, D-A-V-E-R. He's a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he's written a great article about church membership, and he outlines how frequently in the Bible it is very obvious that they practiced membership. They knew who was part of the local church. And one of the ways we know is that they were they practiced redemptive discipline among themselves. They admonished and corrected each other. They accepted that as an aspect of their commitment to God and each other. That discipline, the idea that they didn't accept aberrant, unrepentant sin in their fellowship. They excised it like cancer. That's what they did. They're like, this is, uh, we're not the world. We're different. We're holy. And so their first efforts were always for remediation and redemption. When you read the Bible, when it talks about discipline, the first thing that they're trying to affect always is reconciliation to truth. When the, Jesus said, if your brother offends you, do what? Take your two little feet and you go to your brother, your sister, and you say, you offended me. I was offended by what you said or by what you did. And if you have a mature brother or sister in Christ, what will they say? Forgive me. I'm sorry. And there you go. It's over, right? We, we can forgive and move on. And, of course, there are severity of things, and there are different kinds of offenses, of course. But that's, this was the, the command of Jesus. If your brother offends you, you go to him and you work it out. But what, what if you, you go to that person and they say, no way. You're wrong. I'm not going to listen to you. I have no interest in being reconciled to you. Then the Bible says you take others with you. To What's the purpose, though? What's the ambition? Reconciliation, right? Remediation. Redemptive. Moving forward in love together, that's it. But what if they say, I don't care how many people you bring, I'm never going to listen to, you know. Then the Bible says you take it to the church, the congregation, its leaders. And if there's no way that this person will acknowledge their sin and it's obvious that they're in sin, the Bible says you treat them like a tax collector a sinner, a person unrepentant. And, and so you would remove them from fellowship. They would be excised. That's what the scripture teaches. We, we have such a Western understanding of, of life that when we hear stuff like this, it, uh, it sounds so alien in our ears, but it's just a matter of reading the Bible. The first efforts that people made were always toward uh, remediation, redemptive. 
But if the witness of the community was damaged by unrepentant immorality, the offender was put away, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can go and read that illustration. So our world is confused, but God is not confused. We confess that humans are created in God's image and that he alone assigns meaning to human personality. We believe in a created order and that God made them male and female and efforts to subvert that order do not come from a place of holiness, surrender, and obedience. I have a friend who uh, posted a long kind of comment this week and I just pulled a part of it from what uh, he said with his permission. And I agree completely with what he's saying here. The idea that someone can change his or her gender at will is an unconscionable invasion of the sovereignty and design of the Creator. That Satan would so confuse the minds of young people that they believe the radical altering of their bodies is the only way to freedom and happiness is a sinister attack, he said. I thought that was so well put. And, and so some of the issues that we're speaking to, man, we are not pulling this out of thin air. It's just around us in uh, society all the time. And we're not trying to tell the world how to be the world. We're trying to say to the church, this is how we, the church, behave. This is what we believe. These are our convictions. And then the, the last part of this, and trying to think through uh, this, these changes we recommend, is that marriage and church membership and firm biblical bottom lines require mutual submission. So successful marriages require mutual submission from the partners. We willingly listen, seek the best interest of the other person. We do that every day. If you're in a healthy marriage, you do that. You listen to them. You serve them. It's small things sometimes. Like, hey, would you put this in the mail for me on Monday? Yeah, why? Because, like, I can't do it and you can. That's why. It's mutual. It's helpful to each other. But we submit to the other person's will and best interests. And we think about uh, submission. We uh, support each other and take actions that are in the best interest of one another. We're reasonable when it comes to cooperating with others. That's healthy marriage behavior. We're reasonable when it comes to cooperating with each other. We help each other. That's what it looks like to submit. Well, we were talking about in Sunday school earlier that that very idea is transferred onto the church in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, where we spent time. And the idea that the church is a reflection of who, uh, what God is like in relationship to his people through Christ in the world. And so submission is an aspect of that. We ask people who work with children here to do some specific things. Like if you, uh, after the age of 18, work with nursery, children, or youth, we require that you have a criminal background check performed which is the tip of the iceberg. It's, it will only reflect some criminal thing that happened in your past, but we do that. And the other thing that we've started to do is to require mandated reporter training for anybody that works with our kids because we want people to know what abuse looks like with kids. What does it look like that this kid has been abused at home or he's been abused someplace? So this was stuff I didn't know as a young pastor. I really didn't know how important it was to provide a safe place for kids to be. But we require that. You cannot work with our children unless you submit to that. Submit to it. 
Later, we plan to have um, sex abuse prevention training as an aspect of our children's ministry. And if you're not willing to do it, we'll say, we're sorry, but you don't get to work with children and youth here. You submit to that. So what we're asking now is for anybody over 18 that wants to serve on a ministry team at this church to become a member. And it's the same idea. It's to submit to good practices that protect people. And that's as clear as I think I can make it. It's a step that we're adding as a mandatory part of ministry. That is if you vote for it to be so. Because even if you quarrel with whether you believe it has a biblical basis, it has a practical spiritual basis that we believe is wise. And it's like the other measures that we've put in place. So we say that part of being in congregational life is mutual submission. You say yes to things that may be difficult because it makes everything better in the long run. Gives us more predictable outcomes that uh, something that shouldn't have happened doesn't happen because our measures are appropriate. It's for our collective good. It protects us as a congregation by placing us under the same agreement. And marriage and church membership stretch us and are only possible with God's help. But with his help, we will strive together to sustain our witness through the practice of holiness. And God determines what's holy, not us. God determines. He reveals it in his word. So as I prepared, I wondered, even though we've had a lot of conversations among the elder body, how putting uh, these two concepts alongside each other would sit with people. Would we think, well, yes, I think that marriage is serious, but church membership? But why would we take belonging to another person seriously but not take belonging to a group of other people seriously? I mentioned this in Sunday school. When Je- you remember the whole conversation Jesus had about lever at marriage that these, the Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection came to Jesus and said this person died and uh, he left a widow. And, and under the leveret rule in the Old Testament, some, one of the other brothers was supposed to marry her. And it says, like, I think it's seven brothers all married the same person. They were like, whose wife will he be in the resurrection? And Jesus is like, not stumped. He, he knew that underlying their assumption was a disbelief in the resurrection. But he said in the resurrection, there is no marriage and given in marriage. Hmm. You can think about that the rest of the afternoon. When I think about the idea that, like, my wife, I'm not going to, what? What is, uh, one thing I'm sure that the image that we're getting from Scripture is that all of our relationships, if we belong to God, are permanent, eternal. So we belong to each other in a way that is unique. And so when we think about covenanting together, that's something to remember. We'll never We think about our place in the world. We'll never change the world if we're just like the world. It's detrimental to press the easy button and escape each time things get messy and hard because things will always be messy and hard. We're all called to model godly love, and Jesus said that people would know we were his followers if we had love for one another. 
Godly love is unique. It suffers long and is kind. It rejoices in truth. It strives to protect the vulnerabilities of others rather than ruthlessly exploiting them. And our goal is to be a church where people's lives may be transformed by the gospel, but if we give away fundamental realities about God, there will be no gospel left to hold out to people. That's what we're saying. You can give these things away, but when they come for redemption and hope, there will be nothing there to offer. And so the gospel writer uh, John in John chapter 1 described the coming of Jesus by saying, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And so those are the two pillars that we need. We need grace, redemptive behavior that's attracting people for forgiveness because God is good and the gospel is good. But truth that also we don't give away the convictions and the practices that without them there is no holiness, there is no life. There's compromise and there's increased problems. And so we need grace and truth. We're going to have a time of commitment today. I'm going to just encourage you, read the information that came to you thoroughly. Make sure that you look at it closely. uh, We're not trying to do anything that uh, isn't obvious. So the Constitution bylaws, there's some printed versions of it, copies of it in the foyer on the right, on the, at the hub when you go out. If, you, if they run out and you'd like one, we'll email you one just as soon as you ask for it. So anything that you need clarification about, let us know because we definitely want you to. And, and when it's all said and done, this congregation is made up of, I don't know how many voting members, but, but you'll be the people that decide whether or not we embrace the uh, uh, changes that we're, we're recommending and think are wise. So let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us. And as I said, this isn't like our usual Sunday fair. Usually it's a different kind of message and approach, but it's needed and hopefully uh, helpful. All right, let me pray for us. God, we're grateful today for the way that you have given.